The reading for today's sermon comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning at verse 6. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labour we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not warn him as an enemy. Pardon me. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the God of peace himself give you all peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful and gracious Father, how kind you've been to us in gathering us here to meet with you and now opening your most sacred lips in the words that we have before us in the scriptures. Open our ears, we pray, and our eyes so that we may see wonderful things in your law and shape us, we pray, in the image of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. And once again, let me uh, welcome particularly those of you who are visiting today. You're here for the first time. It is a real uh, joy for us to see so many new faces. And we hope you have a great time with us. And if you're able to stick around for the baptism reception to celebrate that with us, the new members reception, and and give us a chance to get to know you, that would be a real joy for us. In the last few years, a new phrase has entered the vocabulary of the American workplace. The phrase, quiet quitting, you may have heard it. It means something like to show up for work, to do the bare minimum required to keep your job and not get fired, but not do anything else. Somebody who's quiet quitting will display no concern for performance. They'll display no concern for excellence, for doing the best they can. Uh, They'll generally fail or refuse to engage in any meaningful way with clients or with co-workers beyond the merely perfunctory necessities of their job. They won't be concerned about any contribution to the bottom line or the productivity of the company. They basically occupy a desk, tick a few boxes, answer a few emails, draw a salary and go home. In recent years, turns out this has been quite a growing phenomenon. I looked up the results of a Gallup survey, Gallup, the polling company. This blew me away, the results that they discovered. They surveyed 
122,416 employees from 160-something countries. So it's a massive survey. I expected to find you know, maybe 5 or 10% of the respondents to that survey quiet quitting. The results of that Gallup poll found that worldwide, get this, 59%, 59, that's 59% of workers are somewhere on that quiet quitting spectrum. I suspect that Gallup being Gallup is slightly granular about it. There are probably scales of disengagement. But more than half, 59%, are somewhere on that spectrum of, yeah, whatever. In America, the figure is a little bit lower. It's just over 50%. Just think about that for a second. 50%, 50-something percent of the American workforce is disengaged to some degree along that spectrum of, yeah, can't be bothered, whatever. The figures, I mean, the, the, the cost to the economy. So Gallup, I mean, they, all these kind of statistical geniuses they got working for them. They worked out how much it costs the world economy to have people working like this. Apparently, it's about $9 trillion a year. That is half the GDP of China. It's more than the combined GDP of Japan and Germany, the third and fourth largest economies in the world. If all the quiet quitters went back to work, right? Think about this for a second. All the, all the quiet quitters started doing a day's work and you added up the additional productivity that they produced and you put them all in one country, it would be the third biggest economy on the planet. That is how big a deal this is. Absolutely staggering. Now, the defenders of the movement who are all over TikTok, which apparently is some website or app or something, and Twitter and Instagram and so on and so forth. The defenders of the movement argue that finally what we're seeing is justice at work, in both senses of the word, justice at work. Finally, employees are pushing back, they're putting their foot down, they're saying no to the excessive demands of bosses who expect something for nothing and so on. And look, I'm, I'm ready to concede, okay? I'm, I'm very ready to concede that there are a small minority of people who are working for bosses who are incompetent and neg negligent and exploitative and, and they kind of have to carry on working because the normal kind of free market options of go find a job elsewhere are not really open to them. So I'm, I'm, I'm ready to admit that there's some of that going on. But frankly, here in the US, seriously? I mean, like in the developing world, where it's work in these quite exhausting conditions for 70 hours a week or, that, or you go back to a very rural existence earning even less, yes, I'm, I'm ready to believe that workers are genuinely potentially taken for granted by employers who treat them badly. Even in places like Spain, so Spain has about 13% unemployment at the moment. They've got about 100 and something thousand unfilled vacancies and 3 million unemployed people. So there's far, like 20 something times more workers than there are jobs for them, uh, unemployed workers rather, than there are jobs for them. But here in the US, like we've got 10 million unfilled vacancies and 5 million people unemployed. Like, now obviously not all of them could do all of those jobs, but it's, we're not in a position where employers are really in a position to really be exploitative to their staff. The, ch the challenge for employers, as any of you know who actually employ people, is to retain staff, correct? And so it's very difficult to find any justification for quiet quitting here in America. And so what we've got is 50% of the workforce doing less than or as little as possible because they can't be bothered. 
because they just want to kick back. And you, you see, on the, I, I admit, okay, I went on TikTok, sorry. I, I didn't download the app, I went on the website. And I, I, there's this one, I think it's kind of 70 gazillion million views to this video, this lady who's with her latte at work in the call center. Have you seen that one? I hope not. Good, well done. But she's just kind of mocking this culture of idleness, which is what Paul the Apostle would have called it. Paul the Apostle has a word for quiet quitting. Verse 6, idleness. And he has a fairly blunt prescription for it. Look at verse 6. We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that he's received from us. He's clearly serious about it. This whole section is about this. Look at verse 10. We're going to come back to this. But even when we were with you, right, the first time when we dropped in on our missionary journey, unexpected, the man from Macedonia called us. Yeah, you would please come over here and help us. This is the help that some of you got. If you're not going to work, don't eat. Or rather, if he's not going to work, don't feed him. Verse 10. This whole section, Calvin remarks on it, that Paul is speaking of, quote, idle drones, those who live by the sweat of others while they themselves do nothing. Now, I've been thinking about this, obviously I've had a couple of weeks off from preaching because we've had Pastor Shaw on uh, Jonah chapter 1, and normally when I'm kind of making notes on sermon material in advance, I've got you know, this kind of mind mapping software that I use, and if I get my mouse wheel and zoom out so that I can just about read it and scroll two or three times, I get to the bottom of the notes. Right, this time I've been getting repetitive strain injury in my right index finger as I've been scrolling down and down and down. Just seeing the extent of the implications of this passage, not because I think everyone here is quite quitting. I, I mean, maybe some need a, uh, something of a firm exhortation from Paul the Apostle, but behind this, the, so to speak, theological and pastoral structure of which this is the tip of the iceberg has massive implications for the modern world. I actually think it has huge implications for modern mission. I think we have, we have the potential at, to distinguish ourselves as a people simply by working hard in a culture where 50% of the workforce is not doing so. Besides that, there's a whole bunch of cultural things we should probably think about, theological issues, and all the practical implications for different people, men and women, old and young, young people at school, retirement. We probably ought to think about retirement. Is retirement this kind of divinely and culturally sanctioned kickback, relax, play golf and drink daiquiris? Or should we think of retirement somewhat differently? Caring for the poor. I mean, it's, it's interesting that as soon as we start thinking about the issue of uh, to whom we give food or financial support when they've not worked for it, we immediately get to the issue of the gentleman who I drove past on the way to church this morning, about 10 to 10, who's standing by the intersection of I-30 and Hulan, and got a little cardboard sign in his hand. What do we do? We've got to think about young people, we've got to think about school and preparation for the workplace and education and training. So anyway, I, was, I, I talked to Pastor Shaw about this. I'm like, okay, are we going to squeeze all this into one sermon? And he's like, mm, this, will be a, this will be a bad idea, right? So we're, we're not in a rush. We'll take our time. It might be two weeks. It might even be three. Because I want to hear the voice of the Spirit in what I think is quite a significant aspect of our lives as Christians. You guys spend half your waking life or more working. And clearly, therefore, this is important. So today what I want to do is get started on the... Uh, the basic outlines of the exegesis, 
Um, we'll dig in a little bit, look at some of the details. We won't get to all the details. We'll come back to some of that next week, and then we'll start to see some of the implications for us, and we'll see where we get to. So, okay, let's just get started, work our way through this text. If you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to open them. I do encourage you to bring your Bibles to church, because then you can check and follow along with me. Verse 6, this central instruction, Paul says, Now we command you, brothers, that you keep away from any Sorry, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. The, the term to walk in idleness indicates a habitual way of life. It's not somebody who's just having an afternoon off because they're tired or they've finished their work. This is somebody whose habit of life is to live in idleness and not according with the tradition that you've heard from us. The tradition picked up from uh, 2.15. It's both what was said in the previous letter and also what was spoken and probably what was lived out later, later on. Paul makes reference to that. Um, you've heard from us multiple times. We were with you, even if only for a few weeks, you saw us work. Now, keep away from anybody who doesn't do that, verse 6. Verse 7, uh, he talks about this example that he and his colleagues set. For you yourselves know how we, you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. He appeals to his own example. We know from Acts uh, 18.3 that Paul was a tent maker by trade, and it seems to have been his habit in many places where he went, to carry on his trade. He did it in Corinth, he mentions it there, he mentions it in, uh, he did it in Ephesus, he mentions that in Acts chapter 20. So Paul was in a position where he could legitimately have drawn a stipend or received remuneration for working, we'll come back to that maybe later on as well, but his standard practice was not to, for different reasons, and here it's because, well, we can see there's a problem in Thessalonica. Verse 8, we didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it. Imagine that. Pastor, church planting pastor comes around for dinner. Oh, we'd love, we've got a pastor around, isn't it lovely? And he, and he insists on paying. He's trying to send a message, isn't he? At some level, he's trying to send a message. What that message is, we're discovering. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden for you. So, preaching the gospel by day working, making tents at night, sleeping a couple of hours, if you can. And it wasn't because we don't have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. It's fascinating how Paul always seeks to embody the gospel in himself, and this is something else we're going to come back to. If Christ is a worker, and Paul, what is the hope of glory according to Paul? He says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. So it is to to have Christ the worker in us. So we're giving ourselves as an example, he says. For even when we were with you, we told you this, like this shouldn't be news to you. We said if anyone's not willing to work, notice, not, not able to work, but not willing to do so. Some important distinctions that we'll have to get to. We gave you this command, if he's not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear, so what's, he's heard that the previous visit, the previous letter and the exhortation that went with that have not done the job. Still there's, people are slacking. We've heard that some among you walk in idleness, see, walk in idleness, habitually idle, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, this is something else we're going to come to. There's a hint here about what the, what the motive is for the idleness. It's actually connected to the eschatological teaching that the Thessalonians have got wrong earlier in the letter. So, rather than busy at work, they're busy bodies. Great wordplay in both Greek and English. There's a sense of rather than doing your job, you're, you're getting about some other kind of business that you shouldn't be involved in. So, we'll come to that as well. Now, such persons, we command, again, and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly, earn their own living, and then finally restates a position. If anyone doesn't 
obey what we say, verse 14, have nothing to do with him. Don't regard him as an enemy, verse 15, but warn him as a brother, verse 15. Right, so, that's a, a, you can see the rough shape of the passage. It's quite forceful. In fact, that is the first thing that really stands out. We start looking at the details here. Just think about what we've just seen, and let's zoom in a bit closer. The first thing that really strikes you, isn't it how forceful and insistent Paul the Apostle is? Verse 6. We command you. That word is used um, by the, in Acts 23 to describe what the tribune, Claudius Lysanus, Lysanus uh, said to a young man who'd come to him. It's a, it's a military instruction. It's used of what the Lord says in Acts 17. Uh, in the past, God overlooked your ignorance, but now he commands you to repent. It's not like yeah, it's a helpful lifestyle choice you might find fulfilling. It's absolutely laying it on the line. He says it three times in this section, verse 10, verse 12. He summons all his apostolic authority, verse 6. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to... And you're thinking, what grief is this? It's like 2 Timothy 4. Preach the word. It's that kind of weight that he's putting behind it. But here, it's it's, keep away from idle people. His example is fascinating. Um... It's worth looking at this a bit more. In verse 7 to 9, he reminds him, look, when we were with you, like, we set you an example. And this was really costly, and from one perspective, it was unnecessary for Paul. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 9 that just as you shouldn't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain, and just as the Old Covenant Levites received their offerings from the worship of the people of God, so it's right for men who are engaged in the ministry of the gospel to receive their living from the gospel. That's the phrase he uses. And he insists to the Corinthians that he could have held on to that right, but he relinquishes it. Now, in Corinth, he relinquishes it probably because um, he doesn't want to present himself as one of those sort of paid public speakers who is dependent on the patronage of wealthy people in the city and so on. There was a real problem with that in Corinth. But here, it's actually a different motivation. It's here, but here it's like there's too many people in the congregation or too many people to whom I'm witnessing who have no idea how to work and somebody's got to show them. And the last thing they need is to have as their role model somebody who comes and then we give him stuff, give him money, give him food. We, I, it's gonna, man. So what are we going to do, brother? So, okay, well, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to receive a wage until you lot stop, start working, more or less what Paul's saying. Now, don't worry, I'm not saying that. Well, but be, be, yeah, you, you see what Paul is saying. It's like, this is really significant. And then, it's interesting, um, verse 12, there's a very subtle change of phrasing here from verse 6. Um, the, whole, the whole section, actually, verse 6 down to verse um, 12, is uh, chiasm. You knew that, right? Um, just look closely, I'm not, don't do it now, I'm not going to show you now, but in verse 6, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ... Verse 12, we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we were talking about this on Friday, Pastor Shaw and I, and Pastor Shaw highlighted it's just a fascinating phrase because it's exactly the phrase in Christ that Paul uses elsewhere not to denote authority by which he commands in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, but to connote what it is to be a Christian. 
To be in Christ is precisely to be one who is indwelled by the Spirit and united to Jesus. To, to say something in Christ is to say something by virtue of which we are one with God our Father through the Spirit because we're united to Jesus. In Christ means it's constitutive of Christian identity. And now he commands you in Christ. In Christ. To do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Because obviously, do your work quietly and earn your own living is just what people in Christ do. Being in Christ necessarily entails work and earn your own living. And uh, so we're chewing over this and Pastor Shaw points out, well, look, it's obvious, isn't it? I'm like, is it? <laughs> um, we've got allusions earlier, which I'll come to in a minute, to the, the Genesis creation narrative, where, well, firstly, God is a worker, but then secondly, Adam is supposed to be a worker and fails in his work. And Jesus is the last Adam. Adam failed in his work, which is it's actually picked up in verse 10, the, the work and eat. The eat, eat by your work is Genesis 3.19. By the sweat of your face you'll eat bread. Remember? We'll come to that in a second. But the point is that the parallel goes deeper. The parallel goes to the point where um, Adam failed in his work. He was there to guard and keep the garden, and he failed to do so. I mean, he failed to guard that tree from his wife. He was silent and therefore complicit in her sin, which is why it's the sin of Adam, not the sin of Eve, which is held up as the, the archetypal sin. Adam was lazy. In Genesis 3, it says, she gave some to her husband who was with her. And we discover to our horror that the whole time that Eve is talking to the serpent. Adam's just like standing there gazing at the leaves or something, doing nothing. Adam's sin was precisely that he was not working, idly standing by. And Christ is the one who overturns Adam's sin precisely by his work. Think how he labored. Think how he, you know, many nights he would stay up all night to pray. And then he's like, we must go and preach to the other villages also. And, and Mark, in his gospel, keeps highlighting how Jesus does this, and then immediately he goes off and does something else, and immediately he goes off and does something else. You get this sense of this um, greater Jehu. Remember the king who everyone, everyone could tell that Jehu's coming because it's, it's the, dry, the guy driving the chariot is Jehu because he's driving like a madman because he's in such a rush to get done all the precious and important things that need to be done. Jesus is the greater Jehu, the one consumed with zeal for my house. Zeal for your house will consume me. That's what the disciples remembered when Jesus flipped over all the tables in the temple. And just think, let, let, that, let those words sink in. Zeal for my house. What, the temple of the Lord? Well, yes, obviously. Yes, but in Greek and Hebrew, just as in English, the word house is the double meaning of household. Jesus has zeal for his house, the temple, because he's passionately concerned for his household, his brothers and sisters. Jesus is a worker. He redeems work by working. And now, now you want to be united with Christ by faith. Here we sit, united with the greater Adam, who is the worker. And what are you going to do? 
walk in idleness. Jesus isn't walking the road of idleness. You can't walk with Christ and be idle. He's not going that way. If you're going to be one with Christ, you're going to be zealous for doing the work, which is actually the work that God has given us to do. Most shockingly, and again, back to the indications of the significance of this forceful instruction, you've got verse 10. Now, we just run headlong into this, don't we? Look. Even when we were with you, we will give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. There is a consistent insistence multiple times in this passage that if there's somebody in the congregation who's not willing to work, who could and should be working, you'd have nothing to do with him or her and not provide even the basic necessities for daily life. I don't know whether this is the most disobeyed instruction in the last few generations of the church in the West. It might be. I guess it might be. Now, just just gather all that stuff together for a second. Just think of all the, the ways in which Paul highlights the importance of this issue. This is, it's up with anything in Galatians and 1 Corinthians, isn't it, in terms of the seriousness of this matter. And it actually forces us to think, if we're looking at verse 10, what would we do? If we can figure out what this means, would we actually do it? We gave you this command. If a guy's not willing to work, and not, notice, not able to work, or not working productively in some other context that isn't remunerative, but if there's somebody who's just not willing to work, somebody who's idle, well, have nothing to do with him, don't give him anything to eat. Now, what... what what would it mean? What would we have to do? There, there are a couple of understandings of this in the commentaries and other literature. Some have argued that it refers to formal excommunication. That somebody who is unwilling to work, who's idle, ought to be basically just excommunicated. Now, it's easy to see why, isn't it? Um, excommunication, remember, is the culmination of a formal, lengthy process of church discipline. Somebody who's been encouraged and taught and then warned privately and perhaps warned publicly multiple times and has insistently refused to repent of a a significant sin which has been drawn to their attention again and again. Eventually what we reluctantly have to conclude is that they're not repentant, they don't have true faith in Christ because they don't have the repentance that goes with true faith. They've cut themselves off from Christ and so excommunication is the formal sacramental Uh, ratification of that. We excommunicate them from the Lord's table. So you can see why somebody might think that that's um, what's going on here, because with such a man, don't even eat. Don't let him eat. You know, you can see that. And the logic seems to imply that, doesn't it? Moreover, there is a parallel with the the text in 1 Corinthians 5, which is certainly about excommunication. Uh, especially verse uh, 11. Let me just read from it, and I'll show you the parallels. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11. I'm writing to you not to associate, same phrase as in first Thess- Second Thessalonians. That, fr- that phrase, that verb, appears three times in the whole New Testament. Two of them are in 1 Corinthians 5, one is in Second Thessalonians 3. Don't associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, another echo in Second Corinthians, in 2 Thessalonians, but is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And so uh, traditionally, and I think rightly, people have associated this with uh, 
of a process of formal excommunication. And it just seems to have so many parallels, doesn't it, to what's going on in uh, 2 Thess 3. However, I think there's... Okay, it's possible that excommunication might be at the end of the road for this person, but it seems to me more likely that something else is in view. Let me explain what I have in mind. Just look with me again. 2 Thessalonians 3. First thing you notice, this is different from 1 Corinthians 5 because there's no process that is described. It doesn't say when you're assembled and the Spirit of the Lord is present, hand this man over to Satan and so on. It doesn't say that. And frankly, that will be useful for the Thessalonians. This is an earlier letter than 1 Corinthians. Uh, it wouldn't have been obvious to them how to actually excommunicate somebody without some kind of instruction on what we're doing here. It might not have been obvious. Uh, it would have been natural to expect Paul to describe that process. But then secondly, the result is expected to be different. In 1 Corinthians 5, it says explicitly, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Whereas here, it looks like um, you're wanting to remain in touch with him, not least because of the decisive feature at the end of um, verse 15, don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Can you see what I'm saying? So it's, it, it really becomes hard to see 2 Thessalonians 3 as a description of excommunication, if the end result is you still think he's a brother, it's not like Matthew 18, is it, where it's like he's a Gentile or a tax collector to you now. So this looks like something else. Now, so what's going on? Okay. Like I said, I think it's all but certain that if this person or people like this didn't change, excommunication would be the end of the, the, end of the line, right? As it would be for any sin, actually, any unrepented of sin, that somebody is, just ceases to struggle with and embraces as though it's okay. In the end, excommunication is always for contumacy, a persistent refusal to hear counsel and repent. But here I think something different is going on. You've got to think back into first century Thessalonica. Remember the church was small and really despised by most people in the local community. So the Christians would only really have had each other to depend upon. So what would have been the effect of Paul saying, verse 10, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat? I suspect the effect is that that would have pretty soon jolted the recalcitrant idle offender back into action. I don't think anybody, if the only place you're going to get food from is the church, and the church says, right, no food from us from now on, I think you might be at the building site the next morning at dawn trying to get yourself a job so you've got some money. In other words, what Paul is anticipating here is not a process of excommunication but a serious attention to the social relationships within the community that would have the actual effect of producing repentance. Notice verse 14, that he may be ashamed. It would be a good thing to have that cut the atmosphere with a knife kind of awkwardness whenever this guy walks into the room until he gets his act together or hers and starts working again. So that's what I think is going on. It's like, Paul isn't saying, hey, this guy needs to be excommunicated. He's saying, look, get a grip, will you? And will everybody else please get a grip? And pretty soon he'll realise he's got to change his ways if he's going hungry. That's what I think is going on. Now, let's just pause a second. Like I said, 
We're not going to try and cover all the practical implications of this, much less what's going on under the surface with like a Christian theology of work this week. But what you've got now is you've got a picture of what's going on in this text, mostly. The motivation stuff will come to next week. Let's just skip to some immediate and obvious practical applications. Can you see first on, first off, sorry, that we probably need to ratchet up somewhat the significance of this aspiration in our list of what's important in the Christian life. Illustration. Parents of children. This is the obvious place to go, isn't it? Parents, we have many, many desires for our kids. Look, look the, the, how many was it? Three people who announced they're expecting a baby this morning? And, and um, uh, two, two of you already have children, one couple for the uh, expecting for the first time it's wonderful news what do you want for your new son and daughter I mean godliness faithfulness to Christ um, we pray that they will be free from like, serious illness and disease don't we we pray that they survive what are um, potentially difficult times in the early years before, early months before birth and then thereafter. And then we pray that they'd meet good people and pray they'd marry and have good friends and if they go to college they wouldn't get sucked into the ideological whirlpool and if they enter some other trade that they'd... they'd well, wh where do we pray that they would learn to be diligent, conscientious, faithful workers? I, I wonder whether almost the first thing that we ought to take seriously is not, okay, how do we enact this sanction, but how do we render it unnecessary by this being one of the prayers that we pray really regularly for our sons and daughters and for ourselves. I pray that our son, our daughter, would grow up to be a diligent, hardworking, cheerful man, woman of God. If we, if we just reshaped our priorities like that surely that would be significant which of course then means it's quite hard to command and commend something we don't do isn't it uh, next week I think it will be next week or maybe not next week in two weeks Pastor Shaw is preaching next week I do want to speak at some length specifically to young people uh, who are not yet at adulthood but let me say something now to parents and, and all of us who are adults. Um, Paul went to massive lengths simply to make sure that there was at least one, actually three, Silas and Timothy, examples of how to work in the Thessalonian church. Now, by God's grace, I, I think there are many examples here. Many examples of faithful men and women who know how to work, but Let's keep our foot on the gas, shall we? Let's, let's make it the case that one of the things that the young people here notice if and when they do go out into a secular workplace is, my goodness, this isn't what I was expecting. <laughs> my mum and dad never used to slack off like this and neither did all those other men and women at church. So let's make this a, what should we call it, cultural haven of Christ-likeness in relation to this particular virtue of being diligent in labour. Let me make some final comments just off the back of verse 10. I, I mentioned um, that we find here an echo of Genesis 3.19. 
I, mean, I just want to finish with a, just a couple of minutes on this. Keep this in your mind. This is Paul's command. If a man will not work, or if, if someone will not work, it actually doesn't say man, it, it, it's gen- general, could be male or female. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Work and eating are correlated. Well, pretty much every commentator I've read recognizes here uh, an echo of Genesis 3.19, and rightly so. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. And of course, we, we normally read that as a curse, Right? So it's like in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, we've been given the command to work, to take dominion over the world, to fill it and subdue it and so on. It's hard work. We've been given that instruction. And then you get to Genesis 3 and you discover, oh, it's going to be painful. Sweat of your face, you'll eat bread. For the woman, in pain, you'll bring forth children. And it's true, it is a curse in that sense. But it's also a command. I mean, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat your bread. What are we to say about that. Well, first up, it's clear that the instruction to work from Genesis 1 doesn't stop just because it gets difficult. It continues. That cultural mandate or creation mandate to work, to take dominion over the world, is still in force, obviously. But more than that, this command to work by the sweat of your face anticipates that it will be difficult, but also imports into the reality of difficult work all of the significance from Genesis 1. In other words, you could put it like this. What did God give Adam and Eve to do in Genesis 1? Well, it's basically to be involved in his project for the created universe. He rules over it, and we are to be his image bearers, and we're to rule over it, and we're to do so by working. And that continues now, even though you sweat, and it's exhausting as you do so. Now, you frame it in that context, you suddenly realize, oh, wow, This thing that we experience as sweat of your face is a gift? Well, Genesis 1, the creation is a gift, isn't it? I I wonder if one of the, the most helpful things we could do is to reframe our attitude even to the boss who is not particularly conscientious, the workplace which is not particularly pleasant, the work which is difficult, to reframe it as a gracious gift of God. Illustration. Um, Some of you children maybe remember the first time, adults probably as well, the first time your parents gave you a bicycle. Yeah? Or you bought a bicycle or something. And it's like, what a wonder, I can remember the first bike I had. Wonderful gift I was given. And it's extremely hard work, and I kept falling off it. And it was really painful but it's a gift. You don't throw the bicycle away because it's hard work to learn to ride it, do you? I, I think sometimes we, we bifurcate between, oh, this is a command of the Lord and this is a gift from God, when actually, isn't, is it not the case that all God's commands are his gifts? Just think about that for a second. Isn't it the case that everything God instructs us to do is for our good? The young man at one of the Bible and theology classes I teach um, a few months ago, he, I'll be honest, he's not at all saints, okay, so you don't know who he is, but I'll be honest, um, I've had to work harder than usual encouraging him to pull his finger out and do some work. One weekend, on the, he'd spent all of Saturday and Sunday afternoon working on some really hard physical labour, and I said to him, so, so how'd you find it? And he said, it was great. I thought, that's fantastic, because he's discovered that it's a gift. What a blessing to go to bed 
completely exhausted with all your muscles sort of burning and aching. It's a gift. And of course, that young man is learning to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. The sweat of your face, fascinating image. The word sweat, I've told some of you this before. The word sweat appears only three times in the Bible. Genesis 3, where it's the manifestation of work that is cursed. Uh, It's in Ezekiel 44, where the priest is not to wear in the sanctuary anything that causes him to sweat, because you don't bring cursed work in the sanctuary, right? There's holy work in the sanctuary. Of course, the other time where sweat appears in the Bible is when it's Sweat was like great drops of blood falling on the ground, Luke 22. In other words, Jesus himself took up the curse of the most painful work. It's by the, echoing Genesis 3, by the sweat of his face, Jesus' face, we eat bread. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, we thank you for the sweat of the face of Jesus. Thank you for the privilege of participating in that glorious gift that you've given us. And we pray that even now and today and in the days that follow and certainly in weeks to come when we shall have cause to reflect on some of the practical details we haven't touched on yet concerning this subject, teach us to embrace with Christ-like zeal and joy and conscientiousness the privilege of working in the created world where you've placed us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.